Oh, take your Bibles. Go to uh, Genesis 38 with me, if you don't mind. Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38. Uh, before I begin, let me do some logistics real quick, just so I don't have to do it towards the end. Just uh, we'll see if we remember. Uh, this morning, we have the privilege of celebrating communion with each other, taking time out of our service this morning to, to look at a picture that reminds us of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the picture of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ for us. And so at the end of our message time, I will um, pray and, and ask you to come receive your elements. And just logistically speaking, it's easier for all of us and the flow of traffic, if you would leave your row that way towards the windows, come to the front, receive your elements, and then kind of make your loop back heading towards your seat. Um, please use your directionals, your blinkers, merge nicely, and don't use your horn, because that would be distracting. Uh, this morning, as we continue in our study of Genesis, uh, we are pretty much beginning the story, a very familiar story, of Joseph. Now, um, most of us are very familiar with the, the main story of how Joseph comes into play in Genesis chapter 37, and I'm just going to kind of briefly run through that to set the context of where we're going this morning in our story in Genesis chapter 38. But, but in chapter 37, it's the very familiar story of uh, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, who reaches the age of 17 um, and at the very beginning of the story, um, Joseph is out tending sheep with the rest of his brothers. And when he comes home, it says uh, he brought a bad report about his brothers to his dad. In other words, he was a tattletale. And it, the, 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 the chapter 37 um, tells us that because of that, because of the fact that Jacob loved Joseph more than all the other brothers and made Joseph this very special outfit to wear, that the brothers could not bring themselves to speak nice about Joseph. It wasn't even they couldn't get along with him. Every time they said his name, it was like, you know, that punk Joseph. There was always something to it, right? So, so in the middle of that context, Joseph begins having some very vivid dreams. Now, it's fascinating to me that, that Joseph, one morning, looks across, I don't know, the breakfast table at his brothers. He's like, guys, I had a dream last night. It was, it was pretty amazing. Um, we, 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 we were binding sheaves of grain, and, and y'all were out in the field doing yours, and I was doing mine, and all of a sudden, the sheaves all stood up. And your sheaves of grain made their way to my grain and bowed before it. Wasn't that amazing? And the brothers are like, seriously? My sheave gathered around your sheave and bowed down to it? You really think you're going to rule over us? And they hated him even more. Oh, but that wasn't the only dream. See, if I had an opportunity to talk to Joseph, I'd be like, dude, enjoy your dreams. Keep them to yourself. Because the next day he gets up and says, I had another dream. This time, it was, I, I saw the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing to me. I mean, there isn't even like interpretation needed for this one. I'm standing there and the sun, moon, and stars, they're, they're bowing to me. And even that time, Jacob has to pull him aside and be like, son, listen, you're not doing yourself any favors. Keep your dreams to yourself. 
And the brothers became even more jealous of him. And so Jacob then tells his son, I want you to go out to the field. The rest of the boys are out um, in the fields. I want you to go out and see how they're doing, and I want you to check in on them and then bring word back to me to let me know how, how things are going. And so Joseph makes his way out to the fields to find his brothers. His brothers look in the distance, and they see that little punk coming. And they start talking. You know what? That kid just drives me nuts. And it is elevated to this place now that they begin to plan how they're going to kill him. But Reuben steps up and says, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're not killing anybody. We're not killing anybody. Instead, let's do this. Let's just capture him, throw him in a pit, and say that a vicious animal has eaten him. Because that's so much better than killing him. So they make the plan. Joseph shows up, they capture him, they they toss him into the, the pit, and they sit down and they have lunch. Think about how callous they've become, right? They're enjoying lunch. Their little brother is in a pit. They're planning on telling dad that a ravenous animal has eaten him until this this group comes by. And Judah, Judah says, wait, 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 wait. We can make some money. Let's not leave him in the pit. Let's sell him. Let's sell him and see what we can get. And so as these, this, this uh, Ishmaelite people are passing through, they sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver and they split the money among themselves. And then they take Joseph's coat of many colors, they dip it in blood, and they send it back to dad to let dad use his own imagination as to what happened to his favorite son. And in dad's mind's eye, he sees his son Joseph being attacked by a vicious animal. And he can't get over it. (laughs) He's inconsolable. It says in verse 35 of chapter 37, all of Jacob's sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Maybe the the boys didn't calculate this well. At the end of chapter 37, you get this this awesome word. It's a Batman word, is what I refer to it as. Meanwhile, so all you people old like me know what I mean when I say Batman word, right? Now young people are like, Batman never said that. Wrong Batman. I'm talking about the real Batman. All right. Meanwhile, (laughs) and we're given a little snippet that the Midianites, the Ishmaelites who had purchased Joseph now had sold him in Egypt to this man named Potiphar. But then in chapter 38, verse 1, you get another meanwhile. It's at that time, and the story goes a completely different direction. And chapter 38 almost seems like an interruption to the rest of the Joseph story, but in fact, it's not. It's here on purpose. And so this morning, I'm going to read chapter 38, and then we're going to walk through the story, and then I'm going to attempt to apply it. (laughs) With God's grace, that is what will happen. We shall see. Chapter 38, verse 1. Now at that time, Judah left his brothers, and he settled near an Adullamite named Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife, and he slept with her. She conceived, gave birth to a son. He named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. 
She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Chazib that she gave birth to him. Now Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife. Perform your duty as her brother-in-law and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring wouldn't be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. Read the Bible, they say. Can't get into trouble if you just read the Bible. Verse 10. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had finished mourning... He and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers. And Tamar was told, listen, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of Enim, which is on the way to Timnah. Because she saw that although Shelah, the little brother, had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. So he went over to her and he said, come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was, in fact, his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, no, only if you leave something with me until you send it. Well, what should I give you, he said. She answered, your, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Now you know why this is one of the top 10 most neglected stories in Scripture. Verse 19. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. So he asked the men of the place, where's this cult prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? Well, there's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adullamite returned to Judah saying, listen, I couldn't find her beside the men of the place said, there's been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, uh, let her keep the items for herself then. Otherwise, we're going to become a laughing stock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. Uh, inferring, we're in the clear then. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute and is now pregnant. Oh, no, no, bring her out, Judah said. Let her be burned to death. And as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring? Whose cord? Whose staff are these? And Judah recognized them. And said, she is more righteous than I am, since I did not give her to my son Sheila. And, 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 and he did not know her intimately again. Now when the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. The midwife took it, tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, this one came out first. But then 
He pulled his hand back and out came his brother. And she said, man, what a breakout you've made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. Glad you came to church. <laughs> um, Bible's not boring. I mean, you, you, you read the story, and one of the thoughts that should come to mind immediately is, seriously, these people? God, you chose these people. I mean, sell a brother into slavery, allow your dad to think that your brother's dead and mourn just inconsolably. Now a father-in-law impregnating his daughter-in-law because one, he thought she was a prostitute, and two, she tricked him into impregnating her. If one of you doesn't start chanting Jerry soon, <laughs> it's messed up, isn't it? And you read this, you're like, what is happening? Let me just, just very carefully and quickly walk through, just so you don't, <laughs> there's some things I want you to miss in the story, but just so you don't miss some of the key components of the story and, and, and in fact lose out on what it is that, that we're trying to learn today. You remember chapters ago, we're talking back in chapter 9, God instructed his people not to marry the Canaanites. It wasn't because they were from Canaan. It wasn't because they were racially different. It was because they had a different set of values. It was because they were known for their immoral lifestyles. And so it would be nearly impossible for you to love and serve God and still embrace the Canaanite culture. So don't marry a Canaanite. And the first thing that Judah does as he abandons his family and gets out of Dodge and avoids the mourning of his father is he runs and he marries a Canaanite. Then you look at Judah's sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, and you get a picture of these boys. Something is messed up here. Ur marries Tamar. It's, and I know, obviously, it's not happy wedded bliss. I love, there's a theologian, an author, a theologian named Carolyn James. And her take on this passage is really insightful. I'm just going to read this because it captures the idea of what's happening in, in the marriage of Tamar and Ur. She says, Tamar's marriage was a nightmare by anybody's standard. Any girlhood hopes she may have had for her future life were quickly shattered by her new husband. Scripture tells us her new husband was wicked in the Lord's sight, but, but spares us the gruesome details. But nobody spared Tamar. She had to live day in and day out with Ur's wickedness. A dull, unhappy marriage is bad enough. Marriage to a wicked man is in a league all of its own. In fact, Er's wickedness was so terrible, God stepped in and took his life. And then things didn't get any better for Tamar. The, 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 the custom of the day is something called a Leverite marriage. It literally means a marriage with a brother-in-law. And when you hear Leverite marriage, it has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. It comes from the Latin word levir, which is a husband's brother. So, so the, the Leverite marriage custom of the day was this. If a man died without a child, um, it would be common for his unmarried brother to then marry his widow in order to provide an, an heir. So, so a widow would marry the, the brother-in-law, and the first son produced in that marriage would be considered the legal descendant of the, the dead husband. And if a brother couldn't do this, you follow it down the line, and in fact, it could end up leading to her father-in-law marrying the daughter-in-law. Side application, think carefully about who you marry. 
This is where the Pharisees in Matthew 22 approached Jesus and said, if this lady is married to a man and he dies and she marries his brother and then he dies and the other brother steps up and he dies all the way through seven brothers and Jesus has to deal with the absolute moronicness of the question, whose wife is she in heaven? And Jesus is like, you don't understand heaven. That's, that's the concept that this comes from, the Leverite marriage. And I know it sounds nuts, but it actually was for two very good reasons in this day. is to make sure that, that the land and the possessions remained within the family, and to make sure that the family line continued. God had made it abundantly clear to Abraham, your descendants. So there was a, a, a call in his life to continue to produce descendants. But it was also to make sure that this widow was protected and provided for. And so, Without going into great detail, Judah takes Onan and says, fulfill your Leverite vow, your your Leverite responsibility, and marry Tamar and produce an heir. But Onan flat out refuses to allow her to get pregnant. Just for the record, he's not refusing to be intimate with her. He's refusing to produce an heir for his brother. Why? Because Onan knows if she has a son then his personal inheritance is diminished. And so, so, so a son means he gets less of an inheritance. If he produces a son, or if he doesn't produce a son, he gets more money and more land for himself. So he, he actually puts his personal interests above his brother's ability to continue the family line. And so he refuses to allow it to happen. And God kills him for it. He kills him for his selfish disobedience. Now Tamar has gone through two husbands, has no heir, and somehow things are about to get even worse. Because Judah just assumes that the problem, it can't be his boys, he just assumes the problem is Tamar. She's some type of bad luck or black widow. In fact, some commentators believe that Judah thought at the time that she might have been a witch. And so Judah, afraid to lose his youngest son, Shelah, holds back his youngest son and says to her, listen, my youngest is too young to marry you, but when he does come of age, trust me. But in the meantime, live like a widow which is, which is so different culturally back then than it is today. To live like a widow means you have now been declared damaged goods. You have now been declared without legal, social, or economic status. You have no money. You have no options. You have no hope. It's not just losing your job. It's being marked as unemployable to everyone. It's being blackballed in every socioeconomic relationship that there is. This woman has now been declared a total outcast. And she knows that Judah can remedy that by following the custom of the Leverite marriage, but he refuses. So now you fast forward in time and, and Judah's wife dies. Tamar hears this. She hears that her father-in-law is coming to town and she creates this, this plan in her mind. Now remember, Tamar's got no options. She has no hope. And, and the reason for her lack of hope is because Judah isn't doing what he should be doing. And the story goes from odd to bizarre. She dresses up like a prostitute. She stands at the side of the road and she catches Judah's attention. It seems that in this moment, she either was already aware or she becomes aware of the fact that the youngest boy, Sheila, is now grown up, but Judah hadn't kept his word. 
So as Judah is making his way down the road, he sees her. He propositions her. How much? A goat. I seem to have left my goats at home. Can I get you one? Fine, you can pay me later, but you have to leave me some collateral. Fine, what collateral should I leave you? And she says very clearly, what I want from you is your signet ring, your cord, and your staff. Why did she ask for those things? Well, in fact, those are the three identifying markers of a man at the time. Now, you and I carry our license or our state identification, whatever it might be, with a picture and all of our identification information on it. That's what Tamar requested from Judah. His ring, it was the thing he would seal deals with. The, the, the cord is probably what that signet ring would have hung around his neck on. And his staff, now, a lot of shepherds used them, but also a lot of people who were high in class or high in royalty or position would, would walk with their staff and usually their name would be engraved on the top of it. You leave those things with me. We'll call it even. He does. He sleeps with her, not having any idea who she was the whole time. He goes home and he tries to pay back what he owes. He has his friend, the Adelamite, bring one of the young goats back to her so that they could be made even, they could be made right, so that he can get his things back. So his buddy goes back with the payment, but in this strange twist, he finds out there, there, no one knows who she is. So he asks around, where's the temple prostitute who usually sits here by the side of the road? There's no temple prostitute who usually sits by the side of the road. So the buddy comes back and says, Judah, can I talk to you a second? We have a problem. There's no temple prostitute. I still got the goat. I ain't got your stuff. So, so I'm assuming Judah has got to get a little worried. I mean, it's not just like his credit is going to be bad now because he didn't pay a bill. But all of his identifying features, all of his identifying belongings are in the hands of somebody else. And if word gets out, so what do you do? Do you begin a search? Do you call the police? How do you report that crime without looking like a moron? So, so Judah has all these things going. He's like, so we're going to let this go or else we will be the laughingstock of the town. It, it's better just to, to let it be. So now fast forward a few months of, of not seeing his items listed on Facebook Marketplace or on, on eBay, um, not seeing his things pop up anywhere, and he's got to be thinking after a few months, three or four months now, all right, dodge that bullet. And then they come to Judah and say, hey, your daughter-in-law, it ain't good. The widow She's obviously been sleeping around. She's pregnant. And this isn't just like loose living. This is adultery. After all, she's pledged to Judah's youngest son, Sheila. And, and Judah's response is extreme. Let's make an example of her. Let's build the fire strong and burn her alive. I mean, and, and I'm assuming this. This is, this is Frank, so I don't know how far away from the Bible I can stand, so you know this is my opinion, all right? But... My opinion is, I think Judas is, is, is thinking, okay, so I, I can rid myself of this curse on my family. I never have to deal with her alone. I don't need to give my youngest daughter to her. So now everything starts anew once she's gone. So let's just get rid of this whole ugly chapter. So the, the wood is gathered. The, the crowd begins to form in the town square. 
And Tamar is brought. But just before she makes it to the post where they're going to tie her up to execute her, <laughs> she says, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you bring this to Judah for me? And just let him know. Whoever owns these things, he's the daddy. Sorry, now we're on Maury Povich. <laughs> it's never ending. And, and it's interesting, even the way she says it, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And then she added, I mean, she could have just left it there, but she added, examine them. Whose ring, cord, and staff are these? I mean, that's like, oh, yeah, oh that's... And Judah rightly, appropriately, steps back and says, Ah, I'm, she is way more righteous than I am. I am guilty. And the story ends, sort of, there's some more, but... <laughs> so, let's just pray and take communion together, shall we? <laughs> Just some quick applications. It's, it's, it's such a strange addition to the story of Joseph that we're all familiar with, right? Joseph gets sold into slavery. He gets sold to Potiphar. You got Potiphar's wife. That's next week. We just keep batting a thousand here the last couple of weeks. And then um, after Potiphar's wife, then he gets in prison. And, then, and, and that whole flow of how Joseph was, was risen to power in, in Egypt. And, and then right in the middle of it, you have this. Why? Now, first of all, we see the development of Judah. We see Judah sell his brother into slavery, leave his family behind, throw himself into the Canaanite lifestyle. Obviously, there's some issues in parenting somewhere there. Um, finds it no big deal just to neglect his now widowed daughter-in-law. Finds it no big deal to both commit adultery, prostitute, and idolatry, temple prostitute. Feels no shame for demanding the death of his daughter-in-law for the shame that she's brought on the family, right? And then in this one instant... This one instant, in God's mercy, he allows Judah to come face to face with his sinful failings. That is mercy. It is mercy when God peels back the veil in your life to reveal to you how dark your heart is. That is mercy. It, it, yes, there's mourning involved but there should be rejoicing in knowing that God is a forgiver, that God has given us redemption and justification, not in our moral behavior, in spite of our immoral foolishness, he has given us that. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and so when he pulls back the curtain and you look, and right before you is the dark of your heart, how you respond in that moment will make all the difference. And in that moment... Although he didn't pray a prayer of repentance, this new creation of Judah emerges. From this point on, in the story of Joseph, Judah returns home to his family. He returns to his God. He becomes the, the primary spokesperson in Egypt as he's negotiating the deal between this second in command in Egypt and his family. In fact, when the idea is floated that Benjamin be sold into slavery, his baby brother Benjamin, Judah, instead of agreeing like he had done with Joseph, offers himself to be the slave. There is this, this transformational moment in Judah's life as the veil is lifted from his dark heart. 
But, but I'll tell you this, the story of Joseph in its entirety isn't about Joseph. That's true throughout the Bible. It's the story of Joseph. Every story in Scripture is about God keeping his promises in spite of the boneheaded self-centeredness of humanity. Man, we're dumb. I'm serious. I, you read this and it's like, okay, awkward, weird. How much worse am I? What we see happen in this story is, is God is working in spite of Judah. Do you know that's how big God is? I was reminded of that this week a number of times. God works with you or without you. He isn't dependent on your faithful obedience. He's not depending on your success. He's not limited by your sinfulness. God's going to do what he said he's going to do, even if you or somebody else tries to oppose him. Nothing's stopping him. That's true about all the stories. I mean, he stuck with Abraham, even though he had a little trouble telling the truth. Even though he and his wife Sarah laughed in God's face, he, he, he stuck with Jacob, the deceiver, the liar, the cheat. Now, now God is sticking with Judah, and God is going to accomplish his purposes, and he's going to do it when he's forced to do it in spite of us. He's still going to do it. That won't change. But let me tell you this, if, if God has to work in spite of you, you have missed an incredible opportunity. You have missed the opportunity to present to God your living sacrifice by obeying him and trying to please him. You have missed the opportunity to shine the light to those people who need it most and explain to them who the master chess player is in life. Who it is that's moving all the pieces on the board in such a way that he gets the most glory. You, you've lost an opportunity to be his spokesperson. God is going to accomplish his will with or without you. Holy smokes, it's so much better to be with him. When you think about Tamar, please, please hear this. God never condemns Tamar for her actions. Now, I don't think it's... A strategy we should employ today. But God uses her to humble Judah. And that's shocking to us. That's the beauty of Scripture too. Particularly the book of Genesis. There are so many reversals that happen. Here, God uses Tamar, a Canaanite woman who pretended to be a prostitute in order to get pregnant. Just that right there should be like, what? God used Tamar, a Canaanite woman who pretended to be a prostitute in order to get pregnant. And God used her to confound the wisdom of Judah. God used her to put on glorious display how big he is. Then you have a reversal. I didn't talk a lot about the kids. We have this reversal happens at the birth of the, her kids and twins, because runs in the family, so twins. And, and, and Tamar gets ready to, to deliver, and a hand shows up, and the nurse takes the string and ties around the hand, because you've got to know which one's the firstborn, because that's incredibly important in the culture. Firstborn, that's the birthright. You've got to know which one. Tie the string. And then all of a sudden, hand's gone, baby's out, different baby. Because that's the way things work. Why? Why, why? why is this reversal? You saw it with Jacob and Esau, right? Esau, 
was the one who had the birthright. Esau was the one who was the firstborn. And yet Jacob becomes the but You see it constantly over and over again. And it's why, this is why, every time you see that in Scripture, every time God raises up or works through someone who, who's on the bottom of the social heap, it reminds us God doesn't save based on merit. God doesn't save based on birth order. He doesn't save based on a social construct. He doesn't save based on human understanding. He doesn't save because you've been in church 24-7. He saves by grace alone. And grace is that picture of God running to you, at you, consistently, even though you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Or worse, I got this, I'm going to do what I want. Grace says, no, you won't. Grace says, I am coming at you. He's going to work in spite of your brokenness, and he has worked in spite of our brokenness so many times. Had it been left up to Judah, Tamar wouldn't have had any children. But God manages to do something amazing through through the deception of Tamar, through the birth of this little boy named Perez. See, there's, there's, there's texts in Scripture that I often skip. Genesis 38 might have been one I should have skipped. And I was reminded this week of what a shame it is that I do. I often skip the genealogies, don't you? Begat, 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 fathered, 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 fathered. Okay, great, 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 great. The Gospel of Matthew opens with a significantly powerful picture of the grace of God. So what Matthew does in Matthew chapter 1 is he traces the lineage of Jesus. And if you're a gospel writer who's writing about Jesus and trying to promote how good Jesus is, how holy he is, that he is the Son of God who has come with healing in his wings, if you're writing to promote the royal lineage of Jesus then you are going to make sure that the lineage that you trace from Ancestry.com or Genealogy.com or whatever it might be, you are going to make sure that it is pure and that it is precise. You want to make sure that you look at that lineage with nothing but, but pride and understand the strength behind this man, Jesus Christ. And so as you read Matthew chapter 1 and you read the lineage of our Savior, as you read the genealogy, it doesn't take you very long to get to the place where you're like, and yeah, what? Why would you keep that in there? You know, back in 2015, oh, I forgot the name of the show, but Ben Affleck was on it. And it's one of those shows that they research your genealogy. And in the middle of the show, they revealed something about his ancestors he was not proud of, and he instructed them not to put it in the show because he was embarrassed. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. A Canaanite woman who pretended to be a prostitute in order to get pregnant. Now we hide that. We don't want anybody to know that. But God says, no, no. Look at the lineage of Jesus. There is nothing but pride and strength in that lineage, because what you see is the almighty hand of God's grace. And in this room, we see nothing but the almighty hand of God's grace. 
that we don't hold Judah and Tamar up as role models. But we have experienced the same grace that they experienced, undeserved, unimaginable. So today, we're going to remember that grace in a picture. It's the picture of communion. Jesus left for us. And let me tell you, if you are with us this morning and you, you know Jesus as Savior, we'd invite you to take communion with us. But if you are here this morning and you don't know him, I am going to ask that you don't. I'm going to ask that you stay in your seat as we leave to receive the elements and, and, and even open your Bible to John chapter 3 and just read. <clears throat> but please don't take communion if you don't know Jesus. This is meant to be an outer picture of an inner truth. It's not one you want to be lying about. The truth that's pictured here is that you and I have been separated from God. <clears throat> not because God's mean, but because we're sinners. And in our sin, we can't approach him. We can't come near to him. <coughs> sorry, not COVID, just cough drop swallowed, sorry. I make sure I clear that out. <coughs> but we can't approach God on our own because of our sin. And God knew that, and so God made a way. That in a stable, in the most uncelebrated of ways, Jesus was born. And then he lived a perfect life. And then he took your place on the cross and died the death that wasn't his, but was yours. And on the cross, as he took the sin of all the world on his shoulders, he made available for all of us his righteousness so that we could be seen by God as having fulfilled the law in perfection just as Jesus did. He tells us to receive that righteousness. It's a gift. All we must do is ask, and it's yours. So that picture this morning is of his body broken, of his blood spilled. So if that's your story this morning, come to the table. Receive your elements. And then you can return to your seats, and, and we'll take communion together. Just a few moments, we'll, we'll do just that. So as the music plays, uh, would you receive your elements? Father, thank you for your goodness to us and your grace towards us. Thank you that even in the, the different type stories that we read and see, that God, that God, we can see your hand of grace on us. We can see your hand of mercy. We can be reminded of how good you are and, and how far you go to receive us, to take us, to, to own us, to love us. Father, it's, it's because of your son Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that we have hope. And so now as we look at this picture, I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged, that you would be glorified, and that our walk with Christ would be strengthened. For it's in his good name, I pray. Amen. Would you come and receive the elements for communion?